Welcome. You're listening to The Dream Feed, a podcast series featuring conversations with musicians on their experiences navigating the seemingly incompatible worlds of professional music and motherhood. I'm Zasha DeCastri, composer, pianist, educator, and mom of two. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, thank you for being here today. Before jumping in with today's guest, I want to briefly tell you about a website I've been developing with Olivia de Prato, Alison Logansall, and Elise Tessier. Since we were all working on similarly themed projects this past year, we decided to connect our work under one umbrella, which we're calling Matricalis, to create a virtual hub that reflects on the impact of motherhood on musicians. It felt like a perfect time to share our experiences and join forces, so we brainstormed the idea of creating a larger platform on the topic to help our community and future generations. Matricalis is a place to share resources about music and parenting, network with other musician moms, and build a broader support system. So please do check out the website, sign up for updates, and consider RSVPing for our first video forum, which will take place virtually on Sunday, November 14th at 11 a.m. Eastern. That's at www.matricalis.com, M-A-T-R-I-C-A-L-I-S.com. Also, this is the fifth episode of the five that were initially funded by the Canada Council for the Arts. I've really enjoyed having these conversations and hope that they have resonated with you. It is my aim to make more in the future, so please stay tuned. And now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce my fifth guest. I'm so happy today to have with me Ayun Huang. Ayun is an award-winning percussionist born in Taiwan who plays both solo and chamber repertoire internationally. She is an avid champion of new music and a prominent voice in the collaborative creation of new works, having commissioned and premiered over 200 pieces. In addition to her work as a performer, Ayun is active as a researcher, exploring the performing body in relation to media technology, theater, dance, and music. She is active as a member of Kermit, the Center for Interdisciplinary Research in Music, Media, and Technology, and co-directs the Center for Brain, Performance, and Creation in Music in Toronto. Ayun spearheaded the Transplanted Roots Percussion Research Symposium five years ago and also serves as the Artistic Director for Soundscape Festival in Cessna, Italy. She currently holds the position of Associate Professor of Music at the University of Toronto and has a daughter who is 15 named Gaia. Thank you, Ayun, for joining me in conversation today. Thank you. Very nice to see you, Zosha. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to pursue a career as a percussionist? Sort of what was your first introduction to music? Sure. I actually started um, music by playing piano. And um, as most kids who grew up in East Asia or in Taiwan and Japan, my first experience with music was through the Yamaha School. When I was about six years old, um, I went to this little classroom with a teacher who taught us solfege, and we each had a tiny electronic organ. That's how I started my music <laughs> education. Um, and later on, when I was in elementary school, I played in a band, and I was really sort of drawn to the sound of the xylophone. And I told the teacher I wanted to play it. And the teacher told me, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> Which made you want to play it more, probably. <laughs> That's right. I, I think that was the deciding factor on why I decided to play percussion. It was because my teacher told me that I couldn't. Um, <laughs> so um, at the summer 
of、um, 1984, I think. I went to this summer camp where I met American jazz vibraphonist Dave Friedman, and he was my first teacher. So my first teacher was actually a jazz vibraphone player, and he was inspirational. You know, he was an improviser. He was making things up. I was really young and I had no idea what he was doing, but I thought he was very special. I wanted to study with this person, so he was my teacher for one week, and that was my first experience with percussion. and And then after that, I started taking lessons in percussion, and I had always had excellent teachers in percussion. And I think that's what really made my career. It was through、mm-hmm. sort of studying with different people that were very special artists. Did you know fairly early on that you wanted to pursue being a professional musician, or was that sort of a gradual realization as you continued to study? Well, I think when I was in middle school, this is an interesting topic. So, when I was at school, I was good at two things. I was good with math, and I was pretty good with music. I was not like the best in music, but I would say that I was. Slightly better in math, but it was very clear to me what I could do with music. It was not so clear to me what I could do with math at that age、mm-hmm. and in the environment that I grew up in. And that was compounded by the fact that I was selected to attend like a gifted music program. So all my friends were musicians or people who whose parents decided going into this specialized program was going to be good for their kids. So we were there to study music together. We had sort of reduced academic activities, so we could have more time to practice, to do chamber music, and then to do large ensembles. And so, because of the way the environment was set up, it, I naturally thought that I would become a musician.、Mm-hmm. Do you find that attraction towards mathematics has still? Informed your musical practice, and I think of percussion. I mean, out of all of the instruments, you have to have this understanding of rhythm, and especially with the kind of contemporary repertoire that you're doing, I, I can imagine that logic would help. Yeah. So sometimes my friends will say that I approach music like a scientist, and I think that, I, I think there's this part of me that's very highly analytical. So when I get a piece of score, my instinct is to like break it down,、mm-hmm. and or. Sometimes when I talk about how to play or how to sort of really master a notation, my approach initially can often be quite、um, scientific. So,、mm-hmm. so I think there's definitely sort of this more sort of mathematical brain that I had when I was younger that's still kind of active. And、mm-hmm. and you know I love the music of Brian Ferney Howe. I love the score of Ferney Howe because when I see a Ferney Howe score, I think you know oh here we go this bunch of math <laughs> I can solve here. And 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 when I started teaching、um, seminars and you know Ferney Howe's、um, Bone Alphabet is one of the first pieces that I introduced to to the graduate seminar and the. Assignment is everybody should solve one bar in this piece. <laughs> so, and so I I get really excited. That's great. Yeah, I remember reading Steve Schick's percussion book where he talks about that piece just really working sort of bar by bar, and that that's kind of the only way you can master something like that. Yeah. So in Steve's article, he talks about three bars mostly, and but in this three bars, basically. 
you get all the methods that you need to decipher all the different bars. Yeah, yeah, it's a great article. It seems though that even if you have this sort of scientific analytic side, that you also are drawn towards things that involve the body, that involve theatrics. In particular, you're perhaps best known for your work in percussion theater. Do you think for our listeners you could? Explain a little bit what this repertoire involves for those who might not be so familiar with the genre. I know you have a wonderful article called Percussion Theater, the Drama of Performance, in which you introduce some key pieces. But maybe for us, you could give us an introduction. Yeah, for sure. So one of my first teachers in Taiwan um, was Bonian. And Bonian studied with the people that I wrote about in this article, this French group called Creole de Secle, the Circle Trio. So when I was a kid, when I was studying with Bornean, even though I have never left the island of Taiwan, I had this sort of fascination and just vivid imagination of what the world would be like if you can play music that was also driven by theatrics and driven by drama. And so this the seed for that kind of curiosity was planted early on, so by this teacher. And and later on, when I finished my undergrad, I, I actually went to study with Gaston Sivest, whom I write about in this article. And subsequently, I worked also with Jean-Pierre Jouet, so one of my heroes, actually. I, I think he's a hero to many percussionists, just about yeah. his work as a composer, uh, his work as a performer. Um, it's quite sort of instrumental, um, what he has done throughout his lifetime. And my year in Paris was very inspirational, and I got to work with them on some of the pieces that I wrote about, so like the music of Cargo. So so this, this is quite interesting. So the, I spent one year in Paris, and that year Radio France actually gave a tribute on the music of Maurizio Cargo. Mm-hmm. And Cargo attended this festival. So this, I think, happened in the month of January. And I remember seeing Cargo perform. He performed this piece where he smoked cigar nonstop on stage for 20 minutes. And he produced himself, just one person, he produced so much smoke. Wow. Why smoke? Cigar smoke. It sort of like fog up the entire stage. <laughs> And, you know, I was like, wow, this is incredible. This is performance. He's smoking the cigar and people are giving him standing ovation. I want this. <laughs> so, then, so then in the same festival, he wrote a timpani concerto. So the timpani concerto for the first 20 minutes was extremely boring. There's, there's nothing going on. I mean, it's like so bad. But then the piece... T- exits brilliantly. So it bri- the, the last move sort of was the climax of the whole piece where Jean-Pierre Jouet, who was playing the, the soloist, he dived into a timpani head and crashed through the head. <laughs> and so, so after that, everybody was like, yes! So I'm like, wow, this is so... This is so brilliant. So then, you know, it's such a just position. So so I think this is kind of, I mean, okay, years after now, I reflect back. I can I can talk slightly more in perspective on how these things play out in my psyche. Um, I think it has to do with the various just position one can bring 
to art making,、mm-hmm. and how one can personalize a situation. So through action and and how that can be just so powerful at the moment if you are there to experience it, and and I think some of the key factors that I don't think this is like music that necessarily translates well in the score, right? Nor on a recording. Yes, you need a DVD, which is something you've you've done some projects with. Yeah, but but even that, I think it only captures. Partly of what happens in the live setting,、yes. where everybody gets to live through those moments of surprise together.、Mm-hmm. And I think once you experience something like that, then you feel like, oh wow, I really like this because you're moving through. You know, you're living through those moments together with a group of people, and an experience that cannot be repeated again.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really about that in-person sort of visceral reaction to that kind of repertoire, where it's not just the hearing but the seeing. I think that you know you've mentioned that in your article as well. It becomes a big part of how we hear and experience that music. And I'm wondering, does this repertoire also relate to your interest in humor in music? Because I've noticed that many pieces that you've played, including. Coggle, but also, for instance, Brian Cherney's playing for time, Mark Applebaum's aphasia, and and other repertoire that you've either commissioned or worked on has this sort of playfulness to it. Is that something you discovered through studying theater, or has it always been part of your personality?、Um, I think I definitely have like、um, explored that more、uh, as、mm-hmm. I got older, and this、mm-hmm. kind of idea of storytelling and bringing humor. Into the arts, and I would say that since Gaia was born, so like being able to live my life through the perspective of a child,、mm-hmm. and also really kind of highlighted how how that side of humor is important to me as a person, and how I、yeah. can bring that into art making. And I think before I had Gaia,、um, maybe it was kind of important, but I was actually unaware. Of how、mm-hmm. to highlight that、um, right. personally. So it gave you a more personalized approach to this repertoire. Maybe having、yeah. gone through that experience. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, like when you have a kid, you kind of, in some ways, almost like relive your own childhood.、Mm-hmm. Right. Like you know, going to the zoo, or they wanted to go to the zoo every week. I mean, you know, you go to the zoo every week as a child. Then you stop going to the zoo for twenty years, and then suddenly, you want to go to the zoo again every week, and and so so you get to experience things very differently, and you appreciate sort of、um, small gestures and understanding. Highlighting those small gestures can be very meaningful.、Mm. Yeah, and that's so powerful in the context of performance, especially an instrument or instruments like percussion, where gesture is so crucial to the way we see see the repertoire. I can see from a lot of your past work that you seek out collaborations with many different artists and composers. I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about how you decide which projects to pursue and what it is that you really look for in a collaboration.、Mm. Um. I seem to work best if I like the person. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good starting point. <laughs>、um, 
I mean, okay, liking the person is just one. I think one aspect. I think I I also need to like the person enough. I we can speak frankly without getting offended.、Mm-hmm. So once we can get through both of those, then I feel like very inspired and confident that we can do something interesting.、Mm-hmm. I think. I have worked with many different kind of composers, and and some of them start with a friendship, and some some of them start with this notion that I really admire their work, and I wish they would write a piece for me. So, for example,、um, Philippe Leroux wrote a piece for me, and I really admire Philippe as a composer and as a person, and we have a very polite relationship. Right, and I have also worked with people that I know since the nineties, and people who are my great friends. And this is the one that well, the people that I spend time with. And when we collaborate, sometimes we will fight like chickens, but that is okay. <laughs> that is also okay if we fight like chickens, because then we know that it's going to be really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometimes that is necessary to kind of transcend into a next level of expression and music. Yeah, and I think what's very interesting is like to work, not just one piece with a person, but returning to work with the same person over your lifetime and hope to get something different out of each、mm-hmm. experience. And I think that's very interesting. Yeah, I've noticed that that you've worked with certain composers many times, and that I imagine that there's sort of a depth that comes with interpreting multiple works over a person's life. Like, for instance, I know you have this piece that David Bithell wrote fairly recently, Windward for bass drum, projected animations, and light bulb. And you were you were saying that you recently commissioned him to expand this idea into a percussion ensemble piece. Are these kinds of experiments with technology something that you do a lot of in your Practice. Well, I think I've been doing more and more of it, but I would just say that my approach perhaps is slightly different from other people's approaches. That my main ideas is about making techno technological pieces sustainable.、Mm. So, so as a researcher at Kermit, so so through the last decade, so I've seen a lot of this really high tech. Pieces, right?、Um, I have found the problem is that they cost a lot of money to mount. They require many, many people to babysit, <laughs> and they never get a second play. Yeah. And so when I have seek out for new pieces, one of my main goal is to make pieces that other people can play. And to reduce the barrier for people who want to pursue technology, and that's why I love David's work so much. So David is very、uh, pragmatic. So when I commissioned him for this piece, so I went to visit him one summer to talk about working together. He had prior experiences working with a different percussionist, Terry Longshore, because they both work in the same university. So David actually has composed. Several works for percussion, but not for me. And so I first met him through Terry presenting his work with David, and I really enjoy it because I thought there was some really interesting concepts there. And so when I proposed him to write a piece, I said, "Well, my main concern is I want to." 
be able to travel with this piece by myself. Um, I want to challenge the relationship between the live performer and technology, in which the performer is not set out always to serve the technology, and that、mm-hmm. is what I observe most of the time. Yeah. And so, so I want you to use the projector, but I want to somehow still highlight the performer and not to highlight the technology. And then, last, I say, well, how do you feel about using the bass drum skin as the projector screen, so we can kind of deal with several of this issue together? Yeah. And and David is super cool because then he immediately accepted my challenge, you know, and then. He decided that he will go and learn this language Unity. So this is the animation software that he uses in this piece. I was very happy because then you know I had my <laughs> I had my wishes fulfilled. So when COVID hit, I said to David, I said, "Well, let's collaborate on a new piece together. Why don't we make an adaptation of this piece that you made for me based on?" The idea of animation using Unity, and he thought that was a good project to do. So we did this piece for twelve people, and six people、um, came from the University of Toronto Percussion Studio, and the other six came from Terry Longshore's studio, where David teaches.、Mm. Um, the the composer who I had worked the longest together and has created、um, multiple works together is、um, American composer Sean Griffin.、Mm-hmm. So Sean and I went to、um, UCSD together as graduate students. So he and I actually created several works that's more about theater and that's more、mm-hmm. based on action, not so much about technology, but more about action. Yeah, I really like what you're saying also about these. Creative constraints that you, as a performer, come to composers with, because sometimes it's hard to begin from a completely blank slate. And I think having certain things set out from the beginning is a really great way to begin a, a collaboration. Shifting gears a little bit now, I was wondering if we could hear a little bit about your experience of motherhood as a musician. If you could tell us maybe to begin where you were at in your career when you decided to have a child, and at the time how you felt about making this sort of decision in a world of Percussion, where already there may be not so many women. Well, I was about to finish graduate school, or I had just finished graduate school when I had Gaia, and because no one around was having children. I mean, no no female graduate students were having children.、Um, there was one other person who was pregnant at the same time, my friend Fiona, but she was quite a bit older than me. So. I don't feel like that. I really thought about it. Okay. <laughs> it was an instinctual thing for you, or yeah, I I don't think I really understood、mm-hmm. what it meant. Yeah, so so it was not like I thought about it year after year on how it would like affect my career. I I don't think、mm-hmm. it was something that I thought about so much. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. Did you find that being pregnant affected at all your your playing? Just the sort of the physicality of it. Um, for sure. So. <laughs> I was on tour most throughout most of my pregnancy. So in the beginning of my third trimester, I did a European tour,、wow. um, and it was a tour through Switzerland, France, Poland, Slovenia, 
Italy and then back to Switzerland. So we did this loop. So it was a solo tour. I went with a driver and uh, an assistant. So, but we two two friends actually two friends. So one person drove the van and one person helped me with the gear. And at that point, I started having the trouble of like getting up to the instrument, and my belly would dampen the marimba bars. So as I was oh. playing, <laughs> sound, sounds would like get dampened, and I'll be like, oh, oh well, this is how it's gonna go. I. <laughs> Um, but when I was pregnant, um, Gaia actually would tell me the kind of sound she didn't like. So she didn't like the timpani. Mm-hmm. So on the tour, I actually played Sariaho's Six Japanese Gardens. So like, that's like Sariaho's timpani piece with electronics. Gaia did not like that piece. <laughs> so, so every time when I practiced that piece, she was kicking like crazy. So that after 10 minutes of kicking, I would be like, okay, I guess the practice is finished. I can't practice anymore. Um, but I would say that when I was pregnant, I don't, because when you're pregnant, you, you're not like getting bigger in one day. So it's like going like slowly. So you kind of learn to adapt physically, like how to deal with a situation. But sometimes people's perception of what you should or should not be doing was kind of, what's the word? Make, made me more uh, nervous than I actually was. So for example, when I was in tour in Poland, I kept having people coming up to me to tell me, why are you doing this? Shouldn't you be at home? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, in some countries they feel like they should tell you that because it's allowed to do that in those countries. Yeah. And in some countries, they may not feel like they should be telling you that. So that day, actually, the TV was there. And I think they filmed it. Maybe they broadcast it in the local TV. And then people came up to greet me. I mean, there were several things that was kind of unique with my performance. I, I don't think they they regularly saw like a Asian-looking person playing concert and then Asian looking person hitting drums and then the Asian person who is pregnant. Right. So there were so many bizarre situations for them to deal with. Um, several of them actually kind of had a freak out with me. Mm. So I would say that that was something that I was not anticipating when, when I was pregnant doing the tour. I didn't really sort of anticipate the judgment that will come from mostly other women. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And I would say that it's not necessarily only elsewhere. I mean, I think other people even to this day experience these kinds of comments, <laughs> passive yes. aggressive comments, even in places like Canada and the United States. But yeah, that that is something that's hard to anticipate until you're you're in the situation. Were your colleagues and teachers supportive of you? Uh yeah. But most of my teachers and colleagues didn't have children of their own, so they had no opinion on the situation. I think maybe that that is that is something that uh, I think if you play, I don't know, a different instrument where there are more female colleagues, you might get more warning or tips. Right. But I think where I was, I think there were just not that many people who were having children. I mean, there's a friend of mine who had kids a couple of years before me. So Vanessa Tomlinson. So she teaches at um, the Queensland Conservatorium in Brisbane, Australia. So she did, 
she did have kids like couple years before me, but I think also sometimes once you have kids, you're so busy. There are some other things that kind of takes up all your time. You don't really think about mentoring other women as like、mm. on the top of your priority list because you are struggling with like really basic things like. Not getting enough sleep and having、right. to <laughs> change, yeah, not not getting enough sleep, having to change diapers and having to think about you know all the really basic struggles they they don't remember they're just too busy. You know, I struggle with memory. I think when I started not getting enough sleep, that was the first thing I noticed. Yeah,、um, not being able to memorize music. Or like I will practice something, and then the next day I will come and I will be like, oh, I practiced this yesterday. I have no recollection. Yeah. So that that's the part I really kind of felt. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with percussion memory is such an important、yeah. part of the practice, as as you've written about it in some of your research、yeah. as well.、Yeah. Do you feel like this idea of being a female artist and also a mother is still a taboo subject today, or do you? Feel that there are women talking more about or more role models for younger musicians coming up through the pipes. Well, well, I think that when people first start having babies,、um, just as I was saying before, I think they struggle with some of the basics. So, like to get out of the phase before they can start processing what's happening, several years will have gone by. Right. Um, so I think maybe someone who's in my position now that my daughter is now fifteen, I can, you know, having I can have more time to speak about this. I can, you know, talk to people about my experience. So like last month, actually a former student wrote me to tell me that she is pregnant and she、mm-hmm. wanted to talk to me about. My experience, and I've had other students who, not necessarily my students, but other students who write me to to actually ask me、uh, if I can talk to you about this.、Um, so I think people are kind of looking for other figures to talk to,、mm-hmm. but it's not always clear who they are. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's been part of my interest in doing these sort of interviews is to get a sense of those different experiences, especially of people who are at different stages. You feel like your experience of motherhood has changed a lot over time now that you do have a teenage daughter, in terms of, you know, the time that you have to dedicate to your instrument and your teaching and other aspects of your creativity. Yeah, I would say that it gets easier. I mean.、Mm-hmm. It gets easier, but you know, the nature of it also changes.、Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that the first two years are quite difficult because you have to deal with the issue of lack of sleep, and then later on you probably have to deal with sort of change of routine and change of expectation. And so once all of that is dealt with, then you're kind of in a different place. Great. And so if you kind of come out of that, where you have a different expectation about yourself,、um, where you have a different expectation for other people, then then you can have a better grasp on how to go forward. 
Mm-hmm. I find that often the conversations that are had tend to focus on the negative, on the things that are difficult. You know, like you mentioned some of these uh, lack of sleep and issues with memory, but we don't always make time or space to speak about the discoveries and joy that also come with with motherhood. So I'm wondering if you could share with us anything about that, about having how having a child has potentially enriched your life as an artist. We touched about that briefly when we were talking about the role of humor in some of the repertoire that you play, but are there other instances where you felt that that somehow illuminates your practice as an artist? Yeah, I would say that having a child has um, made me become as efficient as I could ever be. Mm-hmm. That efficiency has really sort of taken off. For me, I can get a lot done in the short time that I never thought was possible mm-hmm. um, before having a child. And I also really enjoy like the ability to see the world through the perspective of my mm-hmm. daughter as she's growing and the different mm-hmm. kind of perspective she has given me. And I think that's very interesting to take on as an artist. So that having sort of renewed interest on how to engage with children, so they are your potential audience, they are people who eventually you want them to love your music. So I think having that early opportunity to engage with an audience has been great. I mean, before I had Gaia, I, I also really enjoy working with children. So I used to do a lot of like outreach concerts for little kids. So that probably was one of the reasons why I always kind of um, moved toward more sort of humor, storytelling way. Um, in my repertoire, it also has to do with the long history of interact, interacting with sort of smaller children through concertizing. And also just like to meet different people through your children. I think you get to meet um, a completely different uh, cohort mm-hmm. of adults because you have children. That's a really good point that sometimes our social circles as musicians and as academics, it becomes more and more focused to people who are the same as you in some respect that it yeah it suddenly you know having your kid in school forces you or going to a playground that you you're meeting people who have very different lives from yourself yeah yeah and I think that's very interesting because like basically as you say that like, you know ever since graduate school I always tend to hang out with other artists or other academics so those were my like two largest social cohorts and they were mostly like international people right Mm -hmm. because if you're in a large campus you are mostly going to meet international people so so through Gaia I was able to meet parents that you know for example never left town parents that have very different political view from me parents who felt very different about the arts and the music and of course, you know, as a parent, like choosing the right school is so important for your children, but not just for your children, also for you. If you choose them to go to a school where you cannot really have a five minute conversation with any of the parents, you will go nuts. <laughs> right? You go you go nuts. So yeah. having parents that you can somehow be friends with, it's just amazing because they also like open up other perspectives about life that you sometimes don't think about because, you know, they don't work for a university or they don't go to concerts or they go to very different kind of concerts. Right. 
they sometimes are the people that you really want to get to know because you want them to like come to your thing and tell you what they think about what you do. So yeah. so <laughs> so so I think having that you know having yeah. that kind of broadened community is very important. Yeah. That's such an important perspective. I know that for myself, I lived in Paris 12 years ago as a student, and we'd go to a million concerts and museums and see everything. And then recently, when my daughter was three years old, we went and she was enrolled in the local public school, the community school. And it was a really different experience seeing Paris through that lens and meeting families. We did less concert going, but I feel like I somehow was part of the community and understood more about French culture through that experience. So that's really great that you bring that up. I'm curious, since you've lived in many different places in your life, you know, growing up in Taiwan, I know you've studied in San Diego and taught in Montreal and now in Toronto, how you feel your living environment might affect your ability to balance family and work responsibilities, also in terms of sort of support systems that are available to you. If you could speak a little bit about some of those cultural differences and how it's played out for you in your life. Well, I think it's very important wherever you go, you try to build a community of people that you like and you trust, regardless of locale. I think when I was growing up in Taiwan, uh, the human relationship is very different. So I used to talk about, joke about this with my friends. I said, well, you know, in Taiwan, if I wanted to see a friend, I just like bike to their house and I don't even ring the doorbell. I just open the door and then I, <laughs> I force my way into their house. You know, like that's kind of how people are um, there. I mean, this is exaggeration, but some of it is true. So, so if, I, if I'm like, oh, let's go out for a coffee, I never make an appointment. I say, I'm standing outside. Let's go for a coffee. You know, then we'll go for a coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think in in North America in general, um, things are more like formalized. So, like if you want to meet with somebody, um, it requires organization. So I could almost never show up just unannounced. Mm-hmm. And and for me, for a long time, I wasn't really kind of used to it. I feel like this kind of distance is so weird. I'm not sure if I will ever make friends in this situation mm-hmm. where, you know, it takes much longer to make an appointment to see somebody than the time actually to see somebody. <laughs> so, <laughs> but now I have been outside well, I've been outside of Taiwan longer than I have been in Taiwan, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like my perspective is probably not correct anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just thinking about me, I think nobody could see me now without making an appointment. Like, I, if somebody <laughs> were to try to barge in and have a coffee with me, I would not open the door, you know. <laughs> so changed. I have changed. I mean, if I was younger, somebody shows up at the door, I'll be like, oh, yeah, come in, let's go for coffee. And now if somebody rings at the door, I, I'm i like, who's at the door? I don't remember. I have an appointment. <laughs> so so um, I would just say that my perspective has changed a lot, but I do feel like sort of this attitude towards community, it's becoming sort of more proactive. So I want to have a community. I just have to work on getting one. Yeah, that's funny how 
I think when you're younger, it's very easy to meet people. You know, when you see children in the park, they just go up and say, do you want to be my friend? And that's, then they're friends and they can play together. But as you get older as an adult and become more professionally involved, somehow we have to kind of convince ourselves to make time and be more conscious about creating that. But I, I think you're right that it does help to have those support networks in, in place, to have people that you like and trust that you can work with and be around. Do you feel that becoming a parent has changed your perspective on perfection and or failure in performance? I know that especially in more classical traditions, we think a lot about these ideas. But uh, yeah, I'm wondering, seeing a child grow and develop and try try and, and fall over, you know, in, in terms of learning to walk, if that's affected you at all as a performer? I would say that I probably spend less time agonizing over my imperfections. So I think when I was younger, I used to get really caught up if things don't go well. But I think ever since I was born, I had no time. So I didn't really care. If it didn't go well, I'll just be like, well, I guess that's over. I have to move on to the next thing. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> just just to to put things into context, I, I used to get really nervous before I have to play. And Right after I was born, I did a Scotia Fest in Halifax. So this was like a two-week festival. I was the feature artist. And at the one of the first concerts, right before I play, I actually fell asleep. <laughs> Different extreme from here. Yeah. So in the dressing room, usually I'll be freaking out. I, I actually fell asleep. I guess that's what your body needed more. <laughs> yeah. So I fell asleep and I woke up and I'm like, oh, it's time to play. Okay, I better get out there and play. So so like that's how that went. So that you yeah. don't have you don't have time or energy to like dread over things that didn't go well. You just thought, oh well, I have to move on to the next thing. So it sort of changes the outlook on how you yeah. want to manage. Yeah, for sure. And maybe yeah. it's healthy not to dwell so much on on some of the details. I'm curious if we could touch quickly on this period that we're living right now, the past eight, nine months of the pandemic and what this has meant for you in terms of uh, being an artist who whose performances have been mostly stopped, I'm assuming. Um, and then also as a mother, what that's involved for you. I guess with a teenager, your daughter's already more independent in terms of schooling. She can probably manage. Um, but just, yeah, this pause in activity, what has it meant for you? So I probably feel very differently today than if you had asked me on like April 1st. So 2020 <laughs> was going to be my busiest summer season. So then well, when March happened, actually, everybody was in denial. So everybody just thought, oh, okay, well, by the summer, we'll be okay, you know. Yeah. So nobody was really thinking about canceling everything. Then when April came, then things started to get canceled. Um, so I think at first I was a little bit like in denial and not really knowing what was going to happen. And then we just thought, oh, okay, everything is going to be canceled. I guess I'll just move on to do other things. I mean, I kind of feel lucky that I'm not just a performer. I also have other interests. So, right. you know, I write, I produce, um, and then record and teach. So I sort of kind of move my attention to 
many other things that were on the back burner. So I just move all the stuff that were unfinished. I move them to the front burner and try to knock them out one by one. So I would say that I was never really bored, but I did live through a period of disappointment, actually. But then I also was very... Um, I became very obsessed with for a while in the early spring on how to use like technology to navigate through COVID. So I was spending a lot of energy kind of participating in different sort of workshops and situations to study how this transition may work better. Then later on, actually only half of my festivals canceled. The other half went online. Yeah, so it was not total cancellation. So I was very busy, actually, for part of the time. And then, but I think what has worked not so ideally is that when things work down, like when things move to online, what happens is like they pay you a lot less. Right. (laughs) But it takes much longer to produce what they're asking for. Even as a teacher, I'm finding that that to transfer all your classes to online is a lot more work for the yeah, for the first time, for sure, right? But so, so like, for example, there was this presenter. They asked for everybody to basically do a homemade quarantine-style recording. And they pay standard, right? But, but a standard fee, if you go and play this concert, it would take you a whole afternoon, right? You go there, you set up, you soundtrack, you play. But then when it's shifted to a quarantine-style recording, which means you have to be your own cameraman, your own recording man, then you have to sound check yourself. So then you also have to pick re- programs that actually work for the online format. Yeah, so, so I did a recording for this organization that normally would be, half an, well, would be one afternoon, but it took me three weeks. Wow. Because the first few things I did, it came back was like, oh, this really doesn't sound very good. I have to do the whole thing again. Then I was like, I had to come up, you know, we were talking about before, like coming out with kind of a stage design for my Zoom box so it doesn't look so flat. So that took a while. Um, then, then I decided that I needed to do a piece that works better for recording. So I decided to multi-track myself to do a chamber piece rather than to do a solo piece. So suddenly a half an hour program, it was one hour of music. Once you break down all the tracks you have to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it took two, 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 I think two weeks, um, of, recording and including some tracks that I threw away but to record one one hour of music all by myself and that was not for very much money and for me that's okay because you know that's partly my research what I gained from that project I used it in my teaching right Mm -hmm. so like in the fall when I needed to direct this remote project with a percussion ensemble everything that I learned through the quarantine recording, I could use in teaching my students and to direct how they can make a recording in isolation. So for me, that was not time wasted. And mm-hmm. and because I ha- I'm in the position of privilege, so so it the money also was not a big deal. But just consider how this would be a huge deal for people who are freelancers that they are asked to do a project that takes four times 
amount of time for the same amount of pay or often less pay. Yeah, I think it's definitely a difficult time to be a freelancer, in particular a freelancer who has children at home. I think it's, you know, to be asked to have these quiet environments where you record and then you don't have childcare. It's an additional um, barrier for a lot of people at this moment when they need the work desperately. Yeah. Um, do you think that some of these technological innovations and learnings that you've been doing will carry through past this period of the pandemic? Yeah, I definitely think post-COVID will be a hybrid world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when it comes to learning and teaching. Mm -hmm. I mean, how it will shape up at the end, I don't really know. I don't think anybody knows. But as or I mean, you're teaching and I'm teaching, we probably could just discuss this. I mean, there are some aspects of remote teaching, especially in the context of like graduate seminar. It's actually quite good. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I think, well. yeah, I think you can work very well. And I also think that this sort of whole idea of like recording yourself and watching it together with a teacher or presented for masterclass remotely um, can also work very well. So like one of the things that I love about the online teaching is that this year I've been able to invite anyone I want to come and guest yeah. in my graduate seminar. So I think in that regard, I think a design of like diversity and just like remote guests, um, I think this, we probably will not give up post COVID. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I also think that because of this, because how easy it is to schedule a remote visitor, it's going to have a long-term impact on carbon footprint, just how people think yes. about whether if you, if one wants to get on an airplane or not. And it's going to have an impact on budget, how people decide to spend their money. That's a really good point. I think especially for academic conference travel and things like that. For performance, I guess it's there's still that element of liveness that we were speaking about before that you can't necessarily capture in a recorded format. But for other activities, it does bear question whether it, it's worth the, the impact that's having environmentally. Yeah, I definitely think that um, the online conferencing can be quite successful. I, I feel like the main part that people haven't quite figured out what to do yet is the social aspect. Yes. So the impromptu aspect of a conference where you can randomly meet someone and become friends with them. So that we haven't really figured out how to do that online. And in addition to the pandemic, where you know this moment really feels electrified by many pressing social political issues, especially here in the United States, there's been a lot more conversation about racial justice, although, of course, it's existed for a long, long time. What are some of the issues that you're most concerned with at this moment, either personally in your life or with regard to teaching and new music that you think are kind of at the forefront in the next couple of years? Yeah, so I would say that this whole issue with the social justice really blew up, um, mm -hmm. even amongst the students at the Faculty yes. of Music in the, in the summer. And there has been a lot of ongoing dialogues that's led both by faculty and students. So one of the things I think I can do personally 
uh, will be through programming, through commissioning of new pieces. So, for example, this year through the percussion ensemble programming, I have given. I, I'm only programming two out of the four concerts. And the other uh, two concerts are programmed by students, okay. and so one of the st student groups wants to address this issue that came up in the summer, the social justice issue. Mm -hmm. So in their uh, programming design, they think very actively about how to do this, so then they can represent different voices. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is just one. Small segment of the pie, but of course, mm -hmm. what we really have to do is to put money where it needs the most, right? Yes. So I tell my students, if you really want to support people who are in disadvantaged position, we have to find a way to get money there. Mm -hmm. So we don't just ask someone to write a piece of music; we make sure that they are funded, right? So the students and I, we we are trying to. Finding fundings for the people that we are bringing in and collaborate with the students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such an important conversation to have to make sure that people are fairly compensated. And I would say also to add to that that, you know, in addition to things like programming and rethinking curricula, that there's an idea of the pipeline that I've been thinking about a lot. Also, that you know, some of these conversations we have to think early and about what we can be doing to help cultivate a more diverse audience or more diverse group of people who are participating in making the music. And that maybe involves looking to, again, back to children <laughs> in a way. Yeah. I mean, when I look at my studio at U of T or, or my studio at McGill, I mean, diversity was always there. And I think it has to do with me, of how I look and who I represent. So I have always attracted um, many Asian students. So the body of the studio is not um, male-driven. So there's often a lot of female percussionists, but also a lot of international students from mm -hmm. different countries. Um, so I think the issue of diversity, of course, do exist, but it, it, by comparison, we have a diverse cohort of mm -hmm. students in our body. And, and I think that also makes us even more aware of how to improve. No, that's, that's great that you bring that up. And I think that just goes to show that representation really does matter. Having a teacher like yourself there draws a different kind of community. It does matter, yeah. What's it been like in Toronto for professional musicians who aren't necessarily academics or... I think people have been doing okay because of yeah. the CERB, you know, the uh, Canada uh, Benefits Program that, mm -hmm. that the government rolled out during COVID. So that has been extended to the end of the year. So basically right. everybody can get $2,000 per month but that's just like the base pay. So so you can get this and then you can work on top of it mm. for $1,000. So everybody can make $3,000. Okay. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So if it's a household, two people making 6000 actually that is nice. That's, that's incredible that they have that support. And also it seems like organizations like the Canada Council for the Arts have been trying to find new funding opportunities for artists. I know not everyone feels they can adapt what they do to the types of terms of these grants, but at least there is, is more support there, I think, than in the United States. 
Yeah, and also like with all the arts organization, you know, like how pe- everybody has like put on hold, but the arts council, from what I understand, is that they don't have to do anything and they won't lose their funding, and mm-hmm. so there are some things they have to do by next March. Okay. Um, but what that is, we don't really know. So, so everybody needs to do something, but everyone is guaranteed not have their funding taken away. That's amazing. And I, the, the pandemic has also had such a psychological aspect for people that at least having that assurance, I think it, it, it eases a lot of the burden. Yeah. But I, I do think that I'm seeing more homeless people. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's worrisome, especially as the weather turns colder to know how that's going to yeah. play out. Well, just to wrap up here, I have three short questions for you. Do you think you could share with us one life hack or tip that you've come up with as a musician parent? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would just say that I think getting good sleep is important to survive both parent, parenthood and being a professional musician. Um, I think be generous to oneself. Uh, that's important. And uh, choose your battle carefully. Don't fight every battle. <laughs> oh, that's such good advice. <laughs> Both professionally and with children. <laughs> Do you think you could share with us one recent moment of joy for you? It could be from your family life or your, your musical life. Well, yesterday, Gaia showed me a video of... Uh, Avatar. Do you know this cartoon Avatar? The movie, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like a series of uh, episodes. So inside okay. this episode, there was an uncle talking to a kid that says, you should get up and go outside to exercise. <laughs> you don't go out and get outside to exercise. Then guy says to me, hey, that's what you tell me every day. <laughs> We could probably all take that advice right now, I think, with everything happening online. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I would just say that as I get older, I maybe you feel the same way. I would say that every 10 years, what's important is different. And so knowing that when to switch gear, uh, it's nice. So so things that were important to me in my 20s, I mean, they're still important. They're just not like number one anymore. So the number one important thing changes every five to ten years oh that's a good observation yeah and just finally is what is one thing that you're looking forward to so it could be a performance an experience an opportunity uh, something that you're dreaming about i think i would like to be able to get on a flight and uh, go to italy next summer nice (laughs) that sounds like a good goal to have (laughs) and not have to sanitize everything every two seconds yeah yeah, I think I would like I would like that. Oh, that would be beautiful. I hope it'll come true for you <laughs> and that things will improve. Thanks so much for doing this interview. It's been fantastic to hear all, all of your perspectives and your stories. I really appreciate it. It was really great to see you and to, yeah. to speak with you today. Okay, take care. You too. Bye. This podcast was produced and edited by Zasha DeCastri, who also composed its theme song. Special thanks to Paula Cosarmeni Messina for her assistance. This project was made possible by a generous grant from the Canada Council for the Arts. For more information, please visit www.thedreamfeedpodcast.com. 
For further resources and projects related to the topic of music and motherhood more broadly, also check out www.matricalis.com and consider joining us for our first video forum on November 14th.